Welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcy. Today, we got the founder and CEO of Rap Snacks, the founder of Boss Up Bank, Mr. James Lindsay. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, my brother. How are you? I'm good. I know, like I was telling you before, you've been a guest that has been in demand, so I'm glad we could finally make this work. And I'm glad as well, man. You've done a number of dope things in your career. Obviously, you got the product side, everything you've done with Rap Snacks, the things you're trying to do in the community. I know you've worked directly with artists too, but throughout everything, you're an entrepreneur at heart, and this is what your whole career thread has been. Has that always been the vision and the journey for you? Was there any point where you were like, oh, let me go do the stable job, or was entrepreneurship at heart where you always thought things were going to be? I think initially, my process was to go out and get a job, go to college, get a job like everyone else. You know, I was fortunate to be hired by Johnson Products coming out of college. It was my first job. So I was actually, you know, I had the ability to sit next to Mr. Johnson, who owned Johnson Products at the time, and really get a prime example of what it looked like owning your own business as a Black man in America. And he was in the hair care industry. And I was really fascinated with that. And I did a great job for him. And in the back of my mind, I was always saying, hey, I want to be like this guy. I want to be able to own my business. I'm going to be able to go into a marketplace and create something that's totally different what's out there in the marketplace and solidify my legacy in the uh, similar product world. Yeah. I mean, you can see those through lines as well, because you started Rap Snacks 25, 26 years ago at this point? Yes, 26 years. And when you started it, did you think that it was going to become what it's become today? Like, what were the steps along that journey? It was kind of funny you asked that because... I was talking to my uh, friend, Wise Intelligent, who runs my Boston Foundation, and he asked me the same question. And my whole concept initially was, it came to me like rap snacks. And my mom always wanted to be my own boss and do some type of branding and product. And I never thought that it wouldn't be successful. It was a journey when Meek Mill says, it's levels to this, right? So it was always levels of, starting the business, making a little bit of money, right? Expanding my distribution. But it was always good to me because it was, I made money at the same time, but it wasn't at the level it is today. But success is all relative to what you think success is. So it was always good for me. And I was always patient because I knew eventually that someone would really see my vision. Every day, consistently, and you're working at it, someone's going to see your vision eventually. So how did you define success in those early years? You mentioned it's all relative because it was early for you in the business, but it was also relatively early for hip hop in terms of branding and a lot of the deals we had seen then. Success was number one, being able to get distributors to sell the product. You know, I started out with 800 cases in one distributor in Philadelphia and I sold out the same day. Success is being able to take that MC potato and turn it into little baby today. You know, it's the vision of being able to progress your brand. And as you said, back in the day, in the years ago, we didn't have any internet, you know, any social media. So I was basically going to city to city, finding out who was this distributor and be able to sell those guys. And when I sold them, I felt like, hey, okay, I got Philadelphia, I have Delaware, I have New York, I have all these states. And as years went on, That's how I measure my success of being able to distribute a product in a broader range because you can have the best product in the world without distribution. 
nobody know about it. Yeah, and that's been a thread throughout everything. And we've seen the steps of that. It was in 2019, you landed the deal with Walmart to get that distribution. And I'm sure that changes the whole game because you're talking about so much of that hand-to-hand, you got to go to this place, that place. But if you get a global distributor like that, it can really change the game up. And it actually did for us too because it solidified us as a brand. Can not only sell in, in the city, it can sell anywhere. And one of the things in the back of my mind, always thought about rap snacks is that the culture of hip-hop is not predicated on any color, skin, creed, or religion. It's based on this being engulfed into the culture and loving the culture. So when we had the opportunity to go into Walmart, I knew that we would be incremental to their business because they never had anything like that with rap snacks in their market, in their stores. So that was one of the things the buyer said to me. So James, this is really funny, too, because how we got in there, we went through a Walmart. They have these... Once a year, you can go and present your brand. So we're going to present the brand to a snack food buyer who was on the inline snack food buyer. And then we end up coming past the buyer who was on the front end. She saw my national sales manager's name tag on his shirt and said, Blair, Rap Snacks, I've been looking for you guys. And to make a long story short, the buyer that is on the ship lane he wasn't ready for us, but how we were able to get in, in Walmart and expand to the regular chip lane as we speak today was she said, I want to give you guys a try. And her background, she worked at Columbia Records before. So all that connection, because this is what happens when I'm selling rap snacks to a 50-year-old white guy. And I'm not saying this, that. I'm just saying a person that's not engulfed into the culture. It's a learning process that I have to kind of continue to tell these guys, hey, look at the headphone business. Look at all the stuff that, you know, was selling and clothes. I mean, look at anything, everything and everything is being touched by the culture. Now, I don't have to do that as much. But those years, it was always about, hey, this is the next thing. So bring us behind the scenes a little bit. So you're in this meeting, you get the opportunity to pitch Walmart on this. Of course, you have to educate them on the cultural piece of it. But what are the things they're looking for in terms of numbers on the distribution side? What case do you need to make in your pitch in order to close that deal? Well, the case is that is this a universal item? You know, the millenniums with rap snacks, we rank very high with millenniums with the brand. But the brand is 26 years old. So we also screw very well with the baby boomers as well. Because they remember rap snacks. You were 25 years old when I started. You're 50 right now. So they were trying to figure out, you know, how does this fit? You know, so I'm telling them it fits everywhere. And it's going to be incremental to your category because people are going to come in your stores just because of rap snacks and they're going to buy other things. Because they're not looking to repeat their sales. They're looking to how can they grow their sales. And your brand has to be a committal to their sales to be able to replace somebody else on those shelves. The shelf space is definitely a tight game with that. Tight game, man. It's like a rapper coming behind a new rapper, coming behind an old rapper. You're going to have to do something different to get them out of there. And I'm sure part of that pitch and education, too, showing that it's a universal product, as you put it, you have to prove to them that this isn't just being bought by Black folks. This is being bought by everyone. Absolutely. And as they start to look and get the data back, they're like, oh, okay, this is really, he's really on to something. You know, we went from there to going to Kroger's and H-E-B and all these other chains. We'll be in Target in September. 
So we're a new kid on the, on the block who's extending the marketplace, you know, who's, you know, adding a lot of different flavor profiles that they don't have, but also appealing to that kid that wants something that's bold, exciting. We switch artists all the time. So we might have a little baby today. We might have another guy, you know, six months from now. So it keeps the brand fresh. Let's talk about the artist piece, because I think that's interesting. You've definitely been able to stay current. You've always had the hottest artist. What do you look for in a successful partnership? And then what makes a successful partnership moving forward? Well, I can use Lil Baby as a prime example. Lil Baby is the prototype of what we're looking for in a Raps Next artist. Number one, he's probably the biggest artist out there on the market right now, as far as last year's album streaming. Number two, he has a core and his audience is so widespread, but he also, he's believable. So you have to be believable to sell brands because they don't want to buy anything that they don't believe that you are. And he's perfect for that. And the artist that gets it, that want to promote their brand, to understand the more you promote it, the better opportunity you'll have not only to make money, but to grow our own brand together. Prime example, when you see a little baby on Rap Snacks, everything is about impressions now. So when you see Lil Baby, you might think about streaming his music the next day. Well, let me, you know, I saw that bag leading his bag. You know, it's all about impressions. So they get a free impression on the Rap Snacks bags and hundreds of thousands of stores. But on top of that, they keep their brand fresh. They keep the brand on people's minds because every day you got that new rapper coming out, that new artist coming out. But everybody don't have a Rap Snacks that, you know, they can be seen in Walmart and all these other places. Can you give me an example of an artist? You don't have to use names, but let's say a partnership that you thought was going to work out well, but for whatever reason, it didn't end up working out. And whether that's on your side or on the artist side. I'll keep it general. There's artists out there that really think their brand is big and what it is. Meaning that you can have a big brand, but... Do you have a brand that can drive people to buy things? It's a difference. So when they think they have a big brand, they tend not to promote, you know, some of the brands that they're associated with. And not only that their career may be sinking, but they're all the other extensions to their brand is sinking as well because they're not putting in the work to be able to let people think that they enjoy the product, number one, and it's something that they can work. You got to work your brand. You got to work your product. And nobody's going to know you have the best product in the world on your bag, but if nobody's going to pick it up, nobody's going to know about it. That might be the biggest artist that you can ever think about. (laughs) That's a good point, because I think this is part of what gets lost when people talk about all the branding opportunities that are available right now for hip-hop artists, and there's many of them. I think people are getting more offers than ever before, but just because you have some type of metric, whether it's Instagram followers or whatever, that doesn't always drive back down to being able to drive commerce, being able to make things happen the same way that someone else that has smaller numbers than you do can effectively move things. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen it. And trust me, what you say was definitely right on point. (laughs) And it's been dope, too, to just see the brand expand. I know you just held up the bag of chips with a little baby on it, but you've also been moving into ramen, too, and things like that. What has that expansion been like? Well, we have an old saying that no category is safe from wrap snacks right now. And I'm looking at ramen noodles, and I start doing research on ramen noodles. I'm looking, they're coming from Japan, they're coming from all these other countries, and they don't really 
cater to our flavor profiles. It's just, you know, you buy ramen, you got chicken, you got beef, you got shrimp, and you got hot. That's what you have. And I was just licking my chops. I'm like, I can infiltrate that market pretty well with some innovative flavors that would extend what they have out there in the marketplace and won't cannibalize anything. And we'll create our own lane like we did with our chips. And when people come by our wrap snacks, E40, prime rib, they buy our product or chicken gumbo, then they're buying wrap snacks product. There's no other product out there in the marketplace. And it's a big business, man. It's like a really business. And it connects to our brand. You know, most rappers grew up on ramen. They grew up on ramen. Most people that come from the inner city, we grew up on ramen. But it just goes back to what I always say, and I tell Pete this all the time, that we are consumers, but not producers. So once we start becoming producers, and we, we're creative people, but we don't, we don't have the opportunity to show it. So I'm opening the door and I'm showing people, you can get into these markets, you can create your own style, your own brand. Then the next thing is, how do we create space at these stores to be able to represent as a culture? You go to a supermarket, you got Goya, which is a $4 billion business, all Hispanics, you know, section. You can go buy any Chinese food, any Chinese section. You know, you can't buy anything that's African-American and influenced in these stores that has a whole section. You have Aunt Your Mama, you have Uncle Ben. And that's why me and Pete, we started that like, oh, no, we're not going to continue this. We're going to have to show that Aunt Your Mama, she was, you know, Uncle Ben, they were models that never represented the brand. So we got to change that narrative and really get food brands that are cultivated by us, that puts the money back into the communities we can start changing some of this stuff. I want to make money, but I'm more so about that than anything. Right. And what I think both you and P have done well with this, you've highlighted how huge this market is, but also how fragmented it can be. I know that there are some high barriers to entry, just given how hard it can be to get in some of the biggest supermarkets and places like Walmart. But if you can get your foot in there, it's not impossible to break through. And I've heard you talk about this on a few podcasts, but just for a few listeners, like how big is this market and how possible is it for new brands to compete with the Pepsi Frito-Lays of the world? If you look at the tech world, I'm just going to say that as an example. you got new tech companies coming all the time. The snack industry is so limited. And when I got into it, it was very family-oriented. It was like this family owned this manufacturing facility, this family owned that manufacturing facility. Now, Rap Snacks is really open. It's a $550 billion industry on a yearly average. And we only represent less than 1% of that. I'm just saying minorities in general in this country. If you go into a supermarket, you might have four companies that own most of the products on the, on the, on the shelves. We have Campbell Soup now that is Snyder who is distributing our brand into Kroger stores. And years ago, I would never imagine that would happen. But again, we're buying everything. We're not producing anything. You know, so the markets are huge, man. Opportunities are huge. This is the new fish fry that we created for Pete. It'll be available at Kroger's, you know, in about 30 days. This is the start. We're just creating brands and connecting the dots. You know, like Pete said, the more we make, the more we can get back. What does the direct-to-consumer side of the business look like? I know so much of the conversation is focused on the distributors. What does that piece look like? So that piece is really developing now. You know, when I, we packaged wrap snacks about five years ago, I wanted to make like it was a Jordan sneaker, like you couldn't find it online. And what we did, we created other 
entrepreneurs because they would go buy the chips at the store, take the price off of it, and resell it for $5 online. In reference to building my brand, for me, that was bigger than selling online. Now that the brand has become a lot bigger, now that we're pushing more online, and this year we'll probably do more online than we've done in the past couple of years. Yeah, because I feel like the ways to do it have just expanded so much, right? Even like the little things that we're doing here. I mean, you got the products for the people watching the YouTube video. You got some of the products behind you here. Even little things like I've noticed like what they've been doing with these versus battles or other things on the live stream. Just a little wrap snacks package right next to the video. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, product placement is everything. I mean, you got to understand that, you know, everything is about impressions, man. So the more people see your product, it's like, wow, where can I buy that at? That's what it is. What I like about it too, you can just see how everything is connected with the mission, right? You're trying to make it so that you're producers, not just consumers, and it connects back into the community. And that community piece is key. And I think that's a lot of the reason why you and P also recently launched Boss Up Bank as an opportunity to help educate and to offer services for those who are underbanked. Can you talk a little bit more about why you decided to launch that and how that fits in? Yes, we talk about starting a business. When I started the business, I started Rap Snacks with $40,000 from friends and family. At the time, I didn't understand how to become bankable. And that's what I used with Boss Up Banking to let everyone know how you can become bankable. What do you need to become bankable? So all the principles of Boss Up Banking is how do you create your credit? What credit score you need to be? What kind of collateral you need to have to become bankable? All this information that you were applying to this is going to help the future entrepreneurs start their business because you can't start your business without any money. You have to have that. And, you know, it's just a part of understanding and creating information that we can give back to our future entrepreneurs coming behind us. Like, Hey guys, we didn't have this information. Here you go. This is something that you can get started. And, you know, even with corporations that, franchises. You don't really know how you can buy these franchises. So it's actually about giving information. I really wanted to do that because it's part of starting a business is being able to become capitalized initially to have enough money where you can survive just starting your business and, and growing your business. Yeah. Cause I mean, especially for you, if you're starting Raph Snacks with 40K, you know, that's a good amount of money. A lot of people don't have that much money starting out of business, but I'm sure it can go by quick, especially in a business like that. You had to buy film. You had to pay up front. You had no credit. It was everything. So that money went really quick. So did you personally have any challenges with banking yourself when you had first gotten started? Absolutely. Like I said, I didn't know how to become bankable. That was the first people I reached out to. How do I get a loan? Well, you know, if we're going to give you 100000 you need to have a house that's worth 100000 But of course, I didn't at the time. So how do you get around that? What are programs there? Well, how do you create enough information to be able to say, oh, this is a special program. I fit this program. They have other programs beside that where you don't have to put a collateral. Yeah, I think it's good because obviously it helps entrepreneurs, but also just helps people that are severely underbanked and unbanked as well. It's still so frustrating when you just see the stats of how many people out there are struggling and you just see so many different advertisements for new banks popping up that are targeting so many of the people that already have access to funding. And it's like, you know, how do we get more of the other things? So it's good to see what you're doing. It's also good to see like what Killer Mike has been doing with his Greenwood thing. So like we want to see more of these. You know, you think about it, 66 million people 
out there that don't have bank accounts in this country. And the reason why they're not being targeted because they feel like they don't have any money. So why target someone that's unbankable, that don't, that don't have a bank account, that we can't make money off of? I feel like if these guys are given an information, they can become the individuals with people that people want to do business with. But you have to give them information to get there. Right. And I assume you also see yourself being a bit more forgiving, at least with some of the financial opportunities you can give some of those people in that 66, as opposed to what they may get from the biggest banks in the country or something like that. One of the crazy things that I've learned about the banking industry, even when a person defaults on their loan, that loan is sold and they made money off that. Mm -hmm. If you have a negative balance, you close your balance down with a bank, they sell that to a finance company to a debt company and they never lose. They never lose. So that was interesting to me because you don't want to do business with these guys anymore, but you still made money off of them. That's one thing always frustrated me about this too. Just tying this back into how you were talking about a distribution, of course, matters more than anything with the work that you're doing. How do you help ensure that you can distribute the services of Boston Bank to as many of the people you can as possible, especially in your target group? The good thing about us is that we're able to sit back and develop relationships with, you know, distribution of that type of banking that will allow us to do our thing the way we want to do it and someone that cares like we do. So it's all about teaming up with a strategic partnership that's in a lot of these guys have it. They just don't know how to do it. And they don't have the infrastructure to be able to say, hey, I want to team up with Boss Up Banking with James Lindsay and Master P to be able to create these services. We tell them that all we have to do is let us do what we do and use your back-end services and we're fine. And hearing you talk about this and also, you know, some things that I know that Master P has said as well, do you ever find that people are... I guess, a bit more impatient than you all might be yourself? Because I think so many of the business principles, the businesses that you've built specifically, it takes time to get to the point that you're at. And you have to be patient if you're really trying to build this from the ground up. Do you find, though, that people necessarily aren't willing to put in that same time or commitment that you've been in just being able to communicate that message clearly? Absolutely. This is a time of the internet. These kids think that everything is overnight success. Me and P always talk about putting the work in. You know, you'll see some of the guys that have been very successful, and it takes time. Some things you might be able to hit in a year, two years. That's more luck. But when you love what you do and you find a passion in what you're doing, time is just not of the essence. That's the key. If you're doing it for the right reason, you're not just doing it for money. You know, I always said I love snacks. I love, I'm like a snack allergist. You know, I'm, I used to put all these bags of chips into a bag and shake it up. And that was my day, you know. So I love what I'm doing. The time is not really, it's not been, been an issue for me. But I know that everybody wants immediate impact. And the key of it is, is how do you continue to thrive in the ups and downs of the business? That's the key. Because you're going to have some lows and you're going to have some highs. How do you handle those lows? to really get back to doing well with your business. That makes sense. And I also imagine it's probably tougher too to communicate that because things are so fast and stronger than ever, whether it's people getting venture capital money for their ventures, the way that things can move quickly, whether it's NFTs or whatever it is, things can just change overnight. But 
you're not necessarily doing as much of that. You're building businesses more from the ownership perspective of, you know, this is something that we're establishing. We, we want to bring on partners when it makes sense. And I imagine that can only get a bit tougher over time as there's so many other type of overnight type, not overnight type successes, but people that are willing to either do partnerships or take on funding or something like that can move faster, but they end up owning less of the business over time. Absolutely. I mean, you got to always say in the business, you got to pick your poison. You know, it all depends what you want. I don't want to own 10% of my business and say it was successful. You know, I want to own a majority of my business and go buy other businesses that will extend my lifeline in business. And I get people all the time, James, you need any money. Now, I don't need, we're debt free. I don't need any money. But if I took money, it would be to buy another company, not invest in my company. And it sounds like you've had a pretty strong foundational thought on that, which is great. Were there ever any opportunities or things that came up that made you at least double take or consider outside investing or things like that? I take everything like it's an opportunity. Every call is an opportunity. But I know the core principles of what I do in business every day. And they're not coming to buy my business because they like me. Exactly. If they want you, it's because there's an opportunity to make more money on that somewhere else. Exactly. So my frame of mind is always like, okay, how can I benefit from this as well? You know, and I'm very astute, you know, and very smart about how I go about things. So I thought about everything. But when I sit back and wonder, I'm like, this is, I want, I'm going to make this point. Everybody think that you have to get a business and sell it in two years. If you're making money and you're happy doing what you're doing, why sell? That's a good point. I feel like there's so much in this environment that makes it hard for people to just think about that. It's like, what do you want? If you like doing this and you're making money, why would you take that outside? You got to think about all the other factors. Because that'll change everything. You know, it's like getting rid of an old girlfriend and getting a new one. It's a whole... <laughs> <laughs> I hear you on that. Let's shift gears a bit. Let's talk Meek Mill, especially because you dropped the Levels lyrics earlier. You co-managed him for quite a bit of time, and you still have the relationship there. What are some of the big lessons that you've learned along the journey managing an artist like him? The big lessons I've learned with Meek is when you're doing something with them, with an artist that's big as him, and Meek is always, I always knew Meek was going to be big. You can't force anything with an artist like that. You got to understand what the likes and dislikes are. You got to understand what is going to benefit his brand overall, not just looking at the money part. And when you do something that he really enjoys and these guys enjoy it, man, it's, it's a pleasure. If you force something with them, it can be a crash. I hear that. And it's been dope to just follow his journey too. And from a timeline perspective, when did you start working with him? What year was this? I started working with him like nine years ago. So there was still a lot of that raw energy, but this was like post I'm a boss and like when him and Ross first linked up, right? Absolutely. People see him as one way. Meek is a heart of gold, you know, and when you have a talent at a young age, you go through ups and downs because you really understand that people are about the business rather than being your friend or you get to see people in this business for who they are eventually. You know, you just got to understand that it's about business. It's not really about friendship and all that because you can become disappointed. Yeah, I mean, I know he went through hell, especially, you know, a few of those years back. But it's been good to just see not just how he's came back from that, but also how the culture has really rallied behind him. And I think a lot of the opportunities that has come his way since then, that's been dope to see. Yeah, I mean, even when we went through all the different things, you know, 
Meekins always works best when his back is against the wall. Because when you got talent and he's very smart of how he puts his plan and his song together and his emotional energy that a lot of people can't match out here. And people feel that. And that's why he's been very successful. And it's funny, too. I saw him say uh, the other day that he just dropped a bag on Dogecoin. So I hope that works out. It's funny because I'm the one that kept that was telling him about that Dogecoin. I'm like, did you buy Dogecoin yet? And I just saw that today. And I'm like, he told me, my guy said that wasn't good. I said, buy it. You know, I'm the guy that when I'm having success in one thing, I'm calling him. That's my guy. You know, if I'm making money, I want him to make money, too. I want Dogecoin at three cents. Oh, nice. So what is it? Is this- that 60 was before we got on this call. Okay, nice. So you got a good 20x there, at least. Oh, at least, yes. Yes. No, that's dope. It's fascinating. I mean, has he done anything on the NFT space yet? I don't think he has, but I mean, I've met with several guys. I mean, we're going to do all kinds of NFTs. I mean, back here, you can't see it. That's my first original picture for Rap Snacks. Oh, nice. So that's my NFT back there. I don't know if you can see it back there, but. It's a fascinating market. I'm one of those guys that I'm like, this is definitely something that, you know, exploded. Yeah, I think so. I mean, for both of y'all, right? With the brand that you've had and as long as you've built it, that access. And I mean, for him too, just so many hits, items. Yeah. He has so much stuff, man. I mean, you know, I think about Meek's NFT. I think about this when he was out there. I put it up today on my story about him rapping, you know, on the street and challenging people. That's classic Meek, man. Oh, yeah, that clip where he does the cornrows and everything, right? Classic, man. Yeah. First guy to be able to rap on the street and be on these different challenges, but to be able to translate that to making really great music. It's a difference. He's really unique, man, and I'm, I'm excited to see where he continues to go from here. Definitely. All right, James. So last question before we let you go, we talked a lot about several things and I feel like distribution, as you mentioned, has been a current theme across all of the businesses. And I know it's different for each business, but what are some things that you do and you would suggest for listeners to do to make sure that theirs is the strongest with what they're building, whether it's their new entrepreneurial journeys and whether they're building something in media, commerce, tech? Well, first and foremost, like I said earlier, they have to love what they do, number one. If you love what you do, it's so much easier to get up every day and put the work in because that's the key. Let's go back to me real quick. I work all these artists. We never took a day off. That's the key. It's putting the work in and loving what you're doing because if you do both of those things and you do it every day consistently, there's no way you're not going to be successful. This is no way. It takes consistency and you got to be willing to put in the work. And it, like you said, it's not two years of work, but you know, you got to be willing to put it in if you want to see it. Absolutely. Before I let you go, where can people find you if they want to follow what you're doing or follow Rap Snacks or anything else that you want to let the listeners know about? Special Rap Snacks on Instagram and fly one for my Instagram. You know, we usually, we're big on Instagram. You can, they can follow that. Okay, dope. Good stuff. James, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate everything. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. 
copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Traffalo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating, and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.